Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 26. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm your brother, Matt. He is my brother, Matt. Also, happy Father's Day. Yeah, this is probably going to go live a little bit after Father's Day, but we are recording on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers out there. We just had a gigantic dinner in our honor. Yeah. It was fantastic. It's pretty sweet. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Hope you guys have been enjoying the instructor series. Hope you've got some value out of it. We're going to continue on those topics today. We're going to be talking about business relationships and networking. This pertains not just to the relationships you have with your students, but also the relationships you're going to have with other instructors gyms, business relationships, a lot of the stuff you probably aren't thinking about. And that's important if you want to open a new gym. These are things that if you're prepared for, it's going to make your life a lot easier. Matt, I think a good place to pick up this conversation is to carry on something we brought up in our prior episode. We talked about skill swapping. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is if you've got someone who has a skill set that you need, like an accountant or a lawyer or a web designer, instead of just paying them outright, you can offer a skill swap where you provide them with some degree of training, whether it be a membership or privates, and they provide you with their services. Mm -hmm. And this can be beneficial for two reasons. One is it saves you money out the gate. And when you're getting up and running, that's going to be really important. But another reason is because it gives you the opportunity to get people in the door to check out your facility. And when you don't have any students, getting anyone in the door is tremendously valuable. Yeah, these are all factors that um, assuming that you you already have a nine to five and then you're tr- thinking about transitioning into maybe owning your own business, uh, you're probably not used to thinking about these types of logistics. Um, and the skill trading aspect of, of uh, networking has been a really crucial part of how I grew my gym. Uh, as we all know, doing jujitsu, you meet tons of people from different walks of life, different uh, backgrounds and different job occupations. So uh, it's really important to be able to, I don't want to say use people, but you know, it, it's it, being able to network with people and offer them something in return that's worth their while to help you out. So for instance, like you mentioned, uh, like a lawyer, I, I, um, sometimes train with a guy who's a lawyer. He helped me draft up a uh, waiver and membership form that was legally binding and, and you know, met all the criteria that it needed to. Otherwise, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about that stuff. So I happen to know a lawyer. Well, let's figure something out so that, um, you know, he can he can help me on that front or maybe some social media stuff. If you need some some posters made or graphics or things like that, if you know somebody that can do that for you, that's really important, too, especially when you're trying to get your business off the ground and, you know, you're trying to save as much money as you possibly can. These things are all going to add up 
uh, very quickly if you have to pay for them outright. So it's very important to to be able to network and to um, you know to to be somebody that these people want to help and they, these people want to see you succeed. That's that's kind of the biggest thing about networking is building strong relationships and and uh, you know long lasting friendships is is kind of part of the jujitsu journey and if you have a business um, it's really important to try to exhaust your resources whether it be students or friends within the community or family you know mom does my accounting at the gym Um, these are all things that add up tremendously for you as a business owner so it's very important to uh to try and skill trade and and, you know maybe maybe um maybe some of them are just trying to help you of the goodness of their heart they want to see see you succeed other people you're going to trade you know maybe free tuition for or privates or or merchandise or whatever it may be so definitely um if you're thinking about starting a gym think about uh you know who do you know Try and get to know the people that you train with and, and try and figure out how can we trade skills so that, uh, you know, everyone saves money in the end. And something that really is a requirement in order to get this far, you need to have quality relationships with the people around you. You don't need to just have a, a cursory, very, very shallow relationship. You need to really understand who people are and what they do. If you want to swap skills with someone, you have to know what those skills are. And the only reason or the only way you'll learn that is if you take interest in the lives of the people around you. Yeah. And 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 a jiu-jitsu school isn't just a fitness facility, right? Like it's literally a social club as well. At least that's sort of how we structure our our training facility is it's more of a it's more of a a place where people can laugh and joke and get to know each other and you know you you make long-lasting relationships. It's not a place where you go and and uh you know smash a bunch of weights and then just leave. Um and and then I think that's more of an enjoyable environment for most people that are coming to train. Yeah, one of the things that I really like about jiu-jitsu, as opposed to just going to the gym, is that you get more than just the exercise. You get to learn a useful skill. You get to train both your body and your mind, and you also get to build a social network. It is, like you said, a social club. And if there's something that everyone here can benefit from, it's to understand that when you are engaging with people, you always want to be genuinely interested and curious in how they're doing and what they're doing. And if you have that kind of deep relationship with someone and you're you're being very curious and you're asking them how they're doing, you're you know, you're going to start to learn about their skills and that's what opens up this kind of dialogue where you can talk about potential skill swapping. Because if you don't really have that relationship with your students, then you're probably not going to get to the point where you would even know you could have such a conversation. Yeah, and I, these are types of things that uh, I think anyone who's starting a well, a business really I mean, any business requires legal documentations, uh, you know, marketing, all these little logistics that you might not think about going in. And, and it's definitely, uh, it's, it's something, it's an advantage to have these people in your corner trying to help you out. So yeah, yeah. Definitely think about that. Life and business are generally a lot easier if both you and the other party genuinely like each other and want each yeah. other to succeed. So if you can build those kind of relationships, then you're already off to strong footing. So... On the topic of relationships, 
building logistics is something that rarely is thought of when it comes to starting a new gym. Uh, And by this, I mean the kinds of relationships and and issues that can crop up in the building that you rent or own, um, to do with like neighboring businesses, your relationship with your landlord. Usually when people want to start a gym, they're so preoccupied in the jujitsu side of things that Mm. they forget that this is really a business. And there are a lot of operational and administrative things that you need to worry about. So, Matt, something you mentioned to me earlier was that the relationship with your landlord is super important when it comes to running a gym. Why don't you talk a bit about that and what you mean? Yeah. So, you know, when you're, when you're looking to start a gym and you're looking for spaces and whatnot, um, you're, you might not know quite what to look for. We're going to talk about some logistics that are involved, but one of them is, is getting to know your landlord and having a relationship that's, uh, uh, I mean, good would be best, but tolerable at the, at the minimal. Um, you definitely don't want to have a, a landlord who is, you know, someone who's not easily approachable or not reliable. I have a really good relationship with my landlord. You know, we, we rarely see each other. If I need anything, he texts me back. You know, he'll answer my questions. If I need something fixed, he gets it done. And in return, the rent's always on time. And as a result, we barely see each other. And that's kind of how we both want it. Um, A relationship like that is going to create less headaches for everyone. And uh, you both have each other's best interests in mind. So that's kind of that's kind of a hidden thing that you know some people can sign a lease and then you know a year into their lease they realize that their landlord's kind of a prick and they don't really want to be associated with them anymore. It's not really fun to ask someone for something that you need if uh, if you're not really seeing eye to eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then yeah, for in terms of neighboring businesses, um, we're in a we're in a sport now that is growing very quickly compared to when I first started doing it about, about 10 years ago. And um, there's tons of Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools in the area now. Uh, it's becoming so popular and for good reason because it's such an amazing art. And um, it's it's important to to coexist with these neighboring businesses and in my opinion having positive relationships uh even though you are technically competing with each other positive relationships are always going to be more comfortable at the end of the day uh you, you know i'm sure people who are listening uh from whatever city you're in there's probably a few gyms that are totally open and totally open to cross training and friendly and then there i'm sure there's a few gyms that are very closed off and possibly a little bit more cultish in terms of behavior and don't like to support each other and don't like to go to tournaments and things like that. So um, it, it is important that no matter what what the schools nearby are like, that uh, you conduct yourself in a way that's respectful and kind of puts jujitsu ahead of your own business. Um, that's I'm very lucky that I'm in an area where most of the gyms in the area are they just want jujitsu to grow. They feel that the more jujitsu there is around, uh, or the more jujitsu that's around, it kind of benefits everyone rather than thinking like, oh, a school popped up down the street. That's going to mean less money out of my pocket. Instead of that, think about how more eyes will now be think will be seeing jujitsu and, and pa- more parents will be thinking about what is jujitsu. And as a result, you know, we, we, uh, we're all going to get more students as the sport becomes more popular. So, um, it's definitely a really important thing to, not get so caught up on, uh, you know, thinking about lost money with potential clients and more just about how jujitsu is growing and that's a positive thing. Yeah, this is a great example of having a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And you see this a lot 
in business. When you run a business, you can have one of two different approaches regarding your competitors. One is you can look at them as, uh, you know, like a life or death enemy and any win that they have is taking away a win from you. And it's a very much a, a zero sum game. That's one way you can look at things. Uh, the world often doesn't really work like that, though. In reality, if you have an abundance mindset, you understand that if Jiu-jitsu gets bigger, then everyone profits from it, right? Exactly. If the It's not about taking a bigger piece of the pie. It's about making the pie bigger. Um, there is room for the art to grow and there's room for everyone to succeed. Someone else's success does not necessarily mean your failure. So it's really important to, to understand that, you know, having an antagonistic relationship with other members of the community is not necessarily going to be beneficial to your gym. And just because someone else is growing, that doesn't mean that your failing or that they're taking anything away from you. And I know that can be a hard thing to swallow if one of your students leaves and goes to a neighboring gym, but it's going to go both ways. You know, when a lot of the students that come to your gym are going to be leaving from somewhere else, it's just a fact of life. It's really not something that you should take personally. Yeah, I've, I've had um, a lot of students come from other gyms. I'm very fortunate that uh, students have seeked me out and a lot of them quite high level have come and trained with me. So I didn't start in a room full of white belts. I was very fortunate to have a lot of really quality transplants, uh, quality people come and train under me. And I've also had some people leave and go to other schools. And, and um, you know, it's it's it, it's one of those things that just happens, whether it's because, uh, you know, people don't uh, people want a certain type of training that maybe you're not offering or maybe life gets in the way and they have to move for whatever reason, for whatever reason it is. Um, if you are if you are the gym owner and you have to either uh, absorb new new students or unfortunately say goodbye to students, the best way to look at it is in a positive way. And, um, you know, if you if you create a commotion and get upset because people are leaving your school uh, for, to go somewhere else, it, the, it's better to actually assess if it's something that you did or something you could have prevented or you were negligent about. It's better to assess your own situation and think, how can I improve myself and make this a place that people want to be rather than, you know, blaming the gym down the street or, or whatever for, for possibly uh, losing one of your students. Yeah. And the other thing to bear in mind too, is that the, the coming and going of students to different, to and from different gyms, that's part of how good ideas cross pollinate from one gym to another. I mean, if you've ever switched gyms, you've probably encountered the situation where, you know, you might think you're really good, but you go to a new gym and they're just doing so much different stuff that it's almost like a system shock and it takes a while to accumulate all of that knowledge that they had that you didn't. And if you're cross-training and people are switching around, that can actually really help the community because everyone then gets exposed to everyone else's ideas, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's like the, it's like how we talked about earlier about how the free sharing of ideas is, is so critical. Um, you know, we, we've earlier referred to that as like idea communism. <laughs> I know that communism is, is a dirty word, but that basically we're talking about, you know, like the, the I think you can also call it the information commons. I've, I've heard it described as where the idea is if you have a, a marketplace of ideas where everyone is contributing knowledge, then everyone is going to succeed greater than if everyone tries to hoard their knowledge, right? right? Knowledge is not um, a fixed commodity. It's not something like, um, I don't know, like grain, where like if I've got it and I take it away from you, then you don't have it anymore. The nice thing about knowledge is if I give you my knowledge, I lose nothing, right? We both have it now. It's like a, in software, you know, you can just copy and paste it over and over again. So one of the nice things about knowledge is that, you know, 
you can share it without any cost to yourself. And as, as we've also discussed earlier, secrecy is really not a good strategy if you want to operate at the highest levels. I mean, I know that you, it sounds like it might work to keep your best ideas to yourself, but mm-hmm. in reality, cross-pollination and people coming and going is only going to be a good thing across the board. Uh, it's something that you don't want to take sourly if it happens to you. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of an old school mentality to think about where you don't want, you know, other people to see your secrets. You don't want, mm-hmm. and and quite honestly at the highest level that that can be perfectly understandable if mm-hmm. we're talking about really high stakes competition. But mm-hmm. um for some someone who who owns a gym like me, um if I'm teaching like uh, one of our systems to someone and then they go and they they go to another school, you know, I I don't I don't own shares in their mind. I, I don't own their brain. I can't, uh, that information that I've passed to them is, it, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It's, it's something that someone paid me for. They learned it from me and, and, and now honestly it's theirs and, and I want that information to get out there. So it, you shouldn't try to look at it like, uh, if you lose a student, oh, well, you know, don't, don't teach that stuff that I taught you or whatever. There's a lot of that that still goes on today, unfortunately. Um, even though there's so many, there's infinite resources on jujitsu and, and how you can learn so many different secrets of, of different people. And then on the other hand, there's, there's people that, uh, they, that don't like gym owners that don't want new knowledge like this entering their school because it might expose weaknesses, uh, that they have, right? So uh, it kind of works both ways. Um, if you, if you're an instructor that, uh, you know, has a school that maybe doesn't have the highest level of jujitsu and then all of a sudden someone enters the gym and they have this style that's like really, you know, different and very effective and working on everyone that person might not want that that uh that person to to go spreading that information because it can expose you and expose that uh you know there's a lot of holes in your instruction so Mm -hmm. uh, it does work both ways yeah a thing to bear in mind and you know you're right that there are times when you might not want to completely open up the books and let everyone know what you're really doing but from my experience, secrets and tricks have a very short self or shelf life of success. You know, they might work once or twice, but they're, they're really based on not so much on good technique or strategy, but on catching people off guard. And they're the kind of things where you can't really build upon them as a foundation of knowledge because, you know, once someone un- understands how a trick works, they're unlikely to be able to pull that trick off successfully again. So yeah, at, at a very, very high level, it might be the case that prior to a major competition, you don't want to give up your game plan, but generally speaking, you're pro- you're, the things that you think are super valuable secrets are probably not actually that valuable, and you're better off probably engaging the community with the community and sharing knowledge. Yeah, like we talked about, if jujitsu as as a whole in your community becomes stronger because of your contribution and because of your presence, that's a positive thing. Um, it, no one's losing from that. It, everyone, you know, and that's and that's a healthy mindset to have especially when you're a gym owner and, uh, you know, your income is on the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've talked about how you deal with competing businesses, but there's also the topic of non-competing businesses. So the the non-jujitsu businesses around you that are going to have to endure you. And this is something that can be tremendously annoying if you are next door to a jujitsu gym, right? The thing about jujitsu gyms is they tend to make a lot of noise. They tend to take up tons and tons of parking spots, right? Tons because of parking. Because you, you got like 30 people coming by. Um, and this can be very taxing as as far as relationships go to the people around you. Um, Matt, have you had any issues or difficulties with this in terms of dealing with the businesses that are next door to yours? 
actually, I'm really fortunate with my location. Um, at first, when I moved in, I thought it was going to be like a really quiet corner that that wasn't going to see a lot of traffic, but I actually do get a lot of traffic and I do have a lot of parking. So that's another thing that if you're looking, thinking about uh, looking for a, a space for your gym, possibly definitely make sure that parking is available. Um, whether it's street parking or, or lot parking, whatever it is, you need to have parking because it's, you know, if you have uh, a kid's class with 20 or 30 kids in there, you're good. The parents are going to need a place to park. And it's something that we just don't think about a lot. So, mm-hmm. Definitely make sure that you, there's lots of parking around. I've been I've been really fortunate. I haven't had any noise complaints or anything like that. But that's not to say that other people won't. I remember um, the last space I was at, there was it was uh, an upper level. So definitely be careful when you are renting a space that's above another business because uh, things like brake falls and and you know sl- uh, slamming and and big takedowns could affect the business downstairs uh, during their working hours, and you might get mm-hmm. complaints and. That's something that we don't think about when we sign leases. And, and uh, you know, we're, like you said, we're just thinking about teaching jujitsu. But all the little logistics that that come along, you, you really don't want to lock yourself into a, a lease that lasts several years. And you're constantly pissing off the people below you. And then they're getting spiteful. And, you know, you don't want to piss them off. But there's nothing you can do because you're, you're just trying to teach. You're just trying to teach jujitsu, right? So it's it, it can be kind of uh, kind of annoying for both parties if you get if you do get stuck in a situation like that but i'll i just recommend you know be aware of the businesses around you and definitely be mindful about uh renting out a space above another business for a brazilian jiu-jitsu program yeah we talked earlier about the importance of having a quality relationship with your landlord that relationship is going to go real south if he's constantly getting complaints about you and your business and that's going to happen if you're making a lot of noise that's disruptive to the other businesses or if you're constantly commenting during all of the parking spots. If you're living out in a more rural area, that might not be a problem. But if you're living in a city, these kinds of things can be make or break for the business. My suggestion would be sort this out before you sign anything. Make Mm -hmm. sure that your landlord really understands what it's like having a martial arts school nearby. You know, it's especially if if you are on like an upper floor, understand that that in itself might be a deal breaker depending on what's going on down below. Um, And also understand that your landlord and the neighboring businesses are going to they need to all be aware of what could happen regarding parking you know there's going to be a massive influx of a whole bunch of people coming in and taking all the parking spots for a few hours a day and I would just highly suggest that you talk to those business owners and your landlord and make sure that they're cool with that before you just assume that they would be because this is something that often business owners get really mad about is if you know they're trying to they're trying to run their own businesses and then next thing you know they can't even get parking out front because all of these martial arts moms are there, right? Yeah, or, that, the, or the ceilings are shaking yeah. constantly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in terms of location, Matt, you know, you talked about how you thought your place was going to be quiet. You know, the old traditional logic for any kind of business is that you want to have a place where, uh, you know, you've got a lot of street traffic or a lot of, you know, there's, there's yeah. basically an open view where people driving or walking by can see your business and your signage. In the present year where everything is online, do you think that's still really important? I've, I, you know, I found that it really isn't that important because, uh, like we discussed in the previous episode, uh, you know, social media is so uh, crucial to any business now. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of doesn't even really matter where you are. I mean, I'm not going to say that it doesn't help because if you have a nice big storefront space, um, 
you know, downtown area, first of all, your parking's probably going to be pretty shitty, but uh, people will walk by and they will be interested. But that doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to get the same leads that you think you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm located right near a bunch of housing and a bunch of businesses. So there's constantly people walking from their housing to the businesses and, and et cetera. So, um, it's really not that big of a deal. You see a lot of jujitsu schools in industrial areas where there's uh, the only traffic that comes in are people literally visiting those businesses and the signage isn't super visible. So nowadays things can all be done online because of the internet. We're all connected. If we need to know where anything is, or if we need to know what's in the area, we can just punch it into Google and it comes up. So I really haven't had that big of a, of a regret from not having like a beautiful store front space. Now, keep in mind, like it would be sweet to have a big, beautiful storefront space with big windows and everyone walking by can see. But when you're starting up your business, you probably can't afford the square footage uh, premiums that that's going to entail. As as you, I hope you know that uh, storefront spaces are usually way more expensive than industrial spaces and warehouse spaces. So uh, it might not be something that's economically feasible for the first five to 10 years. Uh, maybe eventually, once you get enough students, you could get that beautiful store front space with the big windows but for now um you know it might not be possible and that's totally fine because some of the nicest gyms i've seen are in beautiful uh warehouse hangers so um you know to each their own but it's not the end all be all to have that perfect location an industrial warehouse is you know, just as good as any. I'm hardly an expert on this kind of thing, but it seems to me that jujitsu memberships are probably not the type of business that benefit the most from storefronts that are easily visible. You know, it's not like people are, you know, to me, that seems kind of more like an impulse purchase thing, right? You know, you're walking by and it's like, oh, I need to buy a ham. Here's a store where I can buy a ham. <laughs> I'm just going to walk in and do that. A jujitsu membership is not like that. That's probably a lot more akin to buying a car, right? You know, yeah. if you're if you're training and you get a black belt, you've probably spent over $10,000 lifetime in, in towards jujitsu. It's a massive financial commitment. So much like how car dealerships kind of, you know, you kind of have an idea of where you want to go and you search that out on the internet and then you go there. My guess is that jujitsu gems probably work like that and benefit less from having readily visible storefront like a clothing store would. Mm-hmm. Just a guess. I, I don't know no, for that's, certain. That's very logical. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, you know, I, we almost had a spot in Port Moody that was really sweet. It was like a storefront with windows like I'm talking about. And I, it's still, it's nobody's rented it out since. And we were thinking about moving in there a year ago. And, and I still drive by and think, man, that place is cute. Like, that'd be awesome. But would it, de- would it necessarily be more beneficial? Hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, is you got to understand that nicer places cost more. And business isn't just about your top line. It's about your bottom line as well. If You can have a, a beautiful gym, and maybe that beautiful gym will result in getting more members, but it also means your costs are going to be a lot higher. And not just the cost of rent, presumably the cost of insurance as well. Uh, and the co- you know, that kind of stuff means that even though you might be making, you know, bringing in more money, you might also be spending so much money that you're worse off than if you just went somewhere more modest. Yeah. And then another thing uh, to discuss is just, you know, if, if you are thinking about starting a gym and, um, you know, you are going to be thinking, you know, should I be partnering with people? Should I be doing this on my own? Just remember that uh, if you're thinking about partnering with people, that's going to be money out of your pocket. You do eventually have to 
you know, fair's fair. If, if someone's helping you start up a business, they deserve a, a share of it as well. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you start a business with your friend, that's really close friend of yours, it might not end up being a good thing for your friendship, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I, um, I'm very lucky that, uh, Mike Lee wanted, you know, he's willing to help me start this business and really didn't want anything in return. He was doing this so that I could get a school up and running. And that was the perfect relationship. You know, no one, no one really wanted to partner with me until I was about two or three years. Then all of a sudden I started getting all these offers from people like, Hey, we should go into business, all this stuff. Cause they're seeing that my gym is actually starting to do well. I'm thinking, well, where were you before? You know? Uh, and, and, and now that I'm on my own, uh, you know, I still have Mike as a counselor and, uh, or a cons- sorry, a consultant and as, as a coach part partially, but, um, you know, because I'm the only one who really takes home a cut, it's been pretty amazing. Whereas if you have someone who's in on it as well, it can take, you know, it, it could be harder for you to support yourself and your family in the long run. So just definitely make sure that if you go into business with someone that you look at it from all angles and you're not just doing it because you're friends and, and you know, you consider the long term, not just the short term. And also understand if you're inter- entering into any business venture with anyone, understand that you need to be clear about expectations up front, especially when it involves splitting revenue. But you also need to be clear that things could change. This is something people often don't take into account. You know, maybe if I start a business with Matt today, maybe we think, oh yeah, it would be great to, if we just did this 50-50 and maybe we sign some sort of like, you know, uh, corporate structure where it works that way. But that might not wind up being so fair if the business really takes off. And then two years from now, Matt's doing 90% of the work and I've moved on to something else, right? So any business relationship needs to be structured such that the expectations are clear upfront, but also they they remain fluid based on the involvement of the parties because people's lives change, right? You know, just because I I want to be 50-50 involved in a business right now doesn't mean that's going to be the case a year from now. That's something that you need to bear in mind. So before you sign paperwork that gives someone 50% of your business, (laughs) make sure you've really thought about this kind of stuff and thought it through. So once you've got your business all set up, in addition to running the classes, you have the opportunity to make money from privates and seminars and workshops. And a lot of your ability to make this happen is going to come down to your relationships and networking. Matt, I know this is something that you've done before. Can you talk a bit about it? Yeah, well, when you start a business, you know, you're trying to make as much revenue as you can. I'm assuming that you're in a position where you're not rolling in the money. So you did, you know, you have your set classes and that's going to bring in as many people as it's going to bring in, but you got to really look outside the box to think about ways to get revenue, especially as a jujitsu instructor and things like seminars and privates uh, are, are really great ways to do that because, you know, if you're a black belt, you can charge anywhere from 75 to hundred bucks an hour. And that's pretty, pretty fair in terms of uh, the going rate. Um, so it's it, you know having networks and ha- and uh, or networking and having uh, relationships with people where people recognize you as a high level instructor uh, and a quality person and someone who really knows jujitsu it's it's going to be helpful for acquiring these things. Um, this 
I've, I've done certain things online, social media, where I give away privates and, uh, all, you know, all people have to do is like, like, and share this post. And it's basically me just talking about, Hey everyone, I'm starting to do a lot of privates now, or I'm offering workshops to, to schools at good prices, share this. And, you know, you get a free private or whatever. And, and as a result, a lot of people see it and hopefully there'll be a good response where people tag their friends and like it and share it. And that's kind of a way to generate buzz and generate, vi- uh, you know, some visuals on, on what you can offer. So, um, definitely it's, it's not going to happen all at once. I remember when I first started teaching and, uh, nobody wanted privates, you know, it's, it's hard to, for some people, it can be really hard to justify spending 75 bucks or an hour, uh, 75 bucks or a hundred bucks, uh, to, for an hour of training. And I, I get that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily cheap, but, um, you know, after a few years of being a, a, a an instructor, if you're a black belt and you're well respected, like I said, and you know what you're talking about, it's going to happen. And eventually, hopefully, you can acquire like a stable of clients that are going to be returning customers. Um, don't get frustrated if you can't get privates right now. It will happen as long as you keep honing your craft and and uh, you know you're well known. But if you <laughs> I remember at first when I was trying to get privates, I, I was like, man, what can I do to get privates? It's so frustrating. I'm seeing all these other people that have schools, they have privates and they have clients. And I'm just like, man, this is so frustrating. Like I know that's, that it's money that I could be making, but you know, these things take time, just like everything in business, you know, you want things to happen overnight and nothing, nothing happens overnight. Everything takes time to acquire. So, so, uh, in terms of seminars and workshops, is this something that you've ever gone about setting up? And is, is this a situation where someone comes to you and says, Hey, do you want to do a seminar or a workshop? Or is this something that you have actively sought out in the past? Yeah, no, I've done both. I've, I've actively sought out uh, selling selling my my seminars, and I've been approached to do seminars. Um, like everything, and you know, it comes down to who you are, how good you, how well you know jujitsu. What what do you specialize in? Right, like if you're if you're a good competitor, but you're not really an exceptional instructor people are probably going to be less inclined to hire you as an instructor. But if you're well known as an instructor and you really are passionate about jujitsu and and teaching, then people are going to be more interested in, uh, in using you to help benefit their school, especially if you offer a skill, like maybe, you know, something like leg locks or barambolos or whatever, if you can offer something that a school doesn't have, that's going to be really good for you as an, uh, as an instructor offering workshops. Now I will say that, um, you know, there's certain ways that you do want to go about offering workshops and there's ways that you don't want to go around offering workshops. Uh, for example, a bad thing would be to say, Hey, you know, if you're visiting a city or whatever, say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in town. I'd, I'm just letting you know that I'm, I'm offering workshops. A lot of people are going to say, well, you know, unless you're a world champion, I don't really know who you are. So probably not going to hire you for a workshop. But if, what you could do is say, Hey, I'm in town. I'd love to teach a class for you and just introduce yourself. And, uh, you know, this, this is, uh, the mental model we talked about investing in loss. If you're willing to sacrifice a few hours of your time and create relationships with people and get to know them and offer them, you know, if, you know, I'll, t- I'll gladly teach class for a night or, or a few nights or whatever. I'm in town and get to know a team. 
there's a way better chance that they're going to be willing to have you back. If you make a good impression and you have some good knowledge, they'll want to have you back and, and probably pay you another time. That's a really great example because I think a lot of people, they, you know, they kind of get greedy and they want to get rich overnight and they figure that they should be able to just charge money right away. And it would be nice if that were the case. But in a lot of situations, you need to build and invest in those relationships before you can ask for the other person to reciprocate. We mentioned this earlier where sometimes you need to provide value before you can ask for value back. And this is a great example of where you might want to provide some service for free in order to build that relationship. And if that is the case, then people are going to be a lot more interested in having you back later. And you don't even have to be a world champion to put on a good seminar. I mean, some of the best seminars I've had were from people who I had, I had no idea who they were, <laughs> you know, yeah. probably most of you don't know who these people are, but they just put on an amazing seminar. And if you can build those relationships, it opens up those windows to you. So yeah, if you're ever on a business trip somewhere unusual or out, out of your way, or if you're on vacation, it's always good to find the local schools. And if, you know, if you're regardless of your experience level, it's great to drop in. But if you are more senior, yeah, feel free to volunteer to teach or show a few things. It's going to be beneficial for all parties involved. Yeah, that's really the only way that I found if you're not like a, a Leandro Lowe or like a really well-known household name in the jiu-jitsu world is you have to offer something for free at first just to get your, your foot in the door, right? Uh, I've done both. And I've definitely seen a better return offering my services for free. It, it really shows that you're willing to share your knowledge and you're, you know, you're not greedy, like you said, and you're, you know, you're a good person rather than just saying, hey, you know, I'm offering seminars and, uh, you know, if you want to pay me, I'll come in, you know, it doesn't. And, and, and like I said, I've done both and uh, definitely haven't seen much return on on the ladder, so. And it also gives people a good understanding of what they would be paying for because if they know who you are and they have experience with training with you and they've seen you teach, then the next time they know what they're paying for. Whereas if they've never heard of you, it's a completely unknown quantity or, you know, quality, quantity, right? So it's just something that they won't be able to really effectively understand if it's a good deal or not. Where, But if, if you already have that relationship and they've seen you teach, it's a lot easier to justify paying to bring you back out again in the future. Mm -hmm. So another thing that is really important if you're in a city that has a vibrant jujitsu community is open mats. This means both attending other people's open mats and hosting your own at your gym. Matt, talk a bit about your experience with open mats. Yeah, well, you know, if you're well into the your jujitsu community, there's a good chance that there's probably a place once a week where uh, people go and train. And for the longest time for me, it was Burnaby BJJ. Uh, they did a, an open mat every Sunday and you would either bring 10 bucks to donate or uh, two items for the food bank. You know, it was really reasonable and it, things like that was it goes towards a good cause. It's good for the gym because it shows that they care about the community, donating food and whatnot. And as a result, you get to meet all these different people from new gyms it became a really awesome uh, training atmosphere and it's just a good place to be a good place to meet people and sometimes going to these places and creating connections with people uh, and showing your skills uh, by rolling with people is a really great way to spread your name I, I know that you know it had a great effect on for, for, for my branding and my name uh, people started knowing who I was and then you know eventually uh, because of my own school and my own commitments I, I had to stop going there but definitely I, I know I met a lot of great people at these open mats and it's just a cool place to just 
connect with people and and uh, keep good friendships. So definitely, I think if you if you are able to cross train at other gyms and and seek out open mats, that's a that's something that's super valuable both for your social life and if you're a uh, you know if jujitsu is your business, then it's really good for your business. But just one one piece of advice is if you're going to open mats. Try not to be the guy that goes there uh, for free and, and, and doesn't expect to pay anything, you know, just because it is an open mat, you know, the gym's got to keep their lights on or, or maybe make a donation or whatever, whatever they're asking, you know, don't, nothing is for free, right? You're training there, the lights have to stay on. Just, you know, don't be one of those guys that only goes to open mats and, that, <laughs> and that's the only training that they do because they are, they do exist. I would also say just because something is an open mat doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is just invited to show up whenever. I mean, in theory, that's what it should mean, but I don't like to assume that. <laughs> I always like to give people a heads up if I'm going to attend their open mat just so that they, they know. and if, Or bring people. Yeah, or bring people. You know, just because there's an open invite that you know, it, it's still good etiquette to tell people, hey, I'd like to stop by. And that's something I would always suggest you do rather than just dojo storm, <laughs> you know, yeah. especially if you have no idea who these people are, which is sometimes the case. You know, if it's if it's a gym where you're buddies with those people, that's one thing. But if it's a gym where you've never been there before and you don't even know any of them, you probably don't want to show up just completely unannounced. Another thing that's probably worth clarifying, because I don't think we've ever mentioned this, uh, when we talk about things like Burnaby and Pitt Meadows and Port Moody and Coquitlam. If you have no idea what we're talking about, these are all suburbs around the Vancouver area in BC, Canada. <laughs> so, yeah. Just so that everyone knows what these terms mean. Yeah, and and, and also like uh, open mats are really great. I find for people that are new to jujitsu because you know you remember where it's like when you're new to jujitsu, you don't know anyone. You think jujitsu is basically what's inside your own gym, right? Yeah. You, you don't know any of anyone in the city. You don't know anyone in the community. Um, and if you're not introduced to a lot of these people, then you'll probably just keep thinking that your school is, is the, you know, you kind of get stuck in your own camp. So uh, what I used to like to do with new students is I would take them to Burnaby with me and I would introduce them to other people and sort of force them to co-mingle with other people. As a result, uh, you know, they learn who other people are. They learn who the gym owners in the area are. And uh, those those gym gym owners create relationships with these new students, so it's like a really awesome thing. Um, yeah, just introduces people to each other and creates a tighter network overall. That's a really good idea because something that beginners don't really understand is that. Jiu-jitsu is not the same at every single gym. It's not like no. some manual exists that tells you how to do jiu-jitsu and everyone does it the same way. It's not until you get the opportunity to cross-train that you really understand that every gym is quite different and you can learn a lot from going to other gyms. So I think it's really cool that you took your students to another gym. Um, that's that's a really good idea if you ever have a, a situation like that. You know, grab some of your team and take them to another gym and just allow both your team and their team to benefit from the exchange of ideas ideas. Mm -hmm. So I, another thing that we probably should discuss here are tournaments. And this can mean both your role as a competitor, as a coach, and also as, as a volunteer or a referee, uh, especially as you get more senior in jujitsu. If you take on an active role in the community, you might take on some of these authoritative roles. Uh, you might even run or organize a tournament. Matt, what are the things that you need to be mindful of when you're engaging in these kinds of roles at tournaments? 
Well, I mean, it's going to depend on who you are, right? Uh, generally, you want to portray yourself in a respectful manner, whether you're a, a competitor, a parent, a coach, uh, you know, a volunteer. It really doesn't matter. Referee, you want to be respectful. Um, otherwise, you're going to quickly gain a reputation as that douchebag at the tournament who is <laughs> who is screaming and what, or whatever, getting upset. memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> a- exactly. Uh, I've I've been to a lot of tournaments. I've seen a, I've seen a, a lot of stupid stuff, and I've seen I've, I've met a lot of really great people at tournaments. Um, if you're a if you're a business owner or you're representing your school or your brand. Um, it's very important to to attend tournaments, and I know uh, you know tournaments are a lo- they're long days, man. You're standing around um, and waiting. If you're a competitor, it's a lot of it's waiting, and then you finally get to go, and then it's you know it's it's just a long day in general. But there's so many crucial things that happen when you uh, when you go to tournaments. Um, if you're a competitor and you're good <laughs> people are going to notice you they're going to see you that's what happened with me I, I just i competed all the way up through the ranks and then by the time i i was in brown belt i was competing so much and people were actually like coming up to me and saying hey i'm a fan of you i'm my my kid watches you on youtube and stuff we watch your videos it's like wow really like i i literally <laughs> i never expected that people would actually like watch me follow me you know, they, they, they're excited to watch me compete. These are all things that help me launch my business because, uh, you know, if you, if you get a lot of medals and you're, you're consistently on the podium and you have an exciting style or you, you have a style that offers something that a lot of other people don't do, that's going to be very beneficial for you when it comes time to trying to monetize your jujitsu. Um, in terms of coaching, I mean, uh, you're, you're, meeting a lot a lot of people and seeing how other people coach and uh you know things like refereeing is it's it's all going to make you a better coach if you learn how to referee if you volunteer and and help uh you know contribute to the tournament experience for everyone you gain more respect that way you learn how the how the things work behind the scenes it all adds up to to understanding the the whole experience as a whole you know, how we can make it a better experience for everyone involved and how we can keep jujitsu growing. Um, because without tournaments, jujitsu, it doesn't really grow as much. I know not everyone's a competitor, but tournaments really do bring out, uh, the best in, in the jujitsu community, I feel. And then, uh, volunteering, of course, is, it's kind of a thankless job. Usually, usually you get to compete for free if you volunteer, but, um, it's still, it's a nice way to give back. And, and a lot of people do respect you if you're helping behind the scenes in a tournament. The thing about tournaments is they, give jujitsu an opportunity to test ideas against each other. It's a lot like how, you know, the world had a very different understanding of what martial arts worked and what didn't prior to the UFC. But then once you threw all of this into a cauldron, it really changed everyone's perception. Uh, And tournaments are very much similar to that, right? Everyone comes in with their own styles and their own strategies and some will win and some won't. And that's what dictates the evolution of jujitsu. So whether you compete or not, Tournaments are important because that is where a lot of the growing happens because that's where a lot of these, you know, it's, it's very, very Darwinistic in that way. It, it, ideas have the opportunity to survive or they will fail and tournaments are kind of where that knowledge exchange, exchanges. So for that reason alone, they are important. And just in terms of networking, uh, one thing I didn't mention is um, 
<laughs> oddly enough, the people you compete against can sometimes become some really good friends of yours. Mm -hmm. Usually when I compete with people, uh, you instantly gain a bond with that person. Whether you win or you lose, you learn who they are, you learn what school they represent. And generally, you know, you'll come up through the ranks fighting these people over and over and over again. At least that's, that's what my experience was locally. And then when you go other places, you'll meet other people of the same rank, uh, win, loser, or whatever. You're gonna, you're gonna create relationships. And, and it's a, it's a very forgiving art that way. It's not like a, it's not like a boxing or, or other sports, not to shit on boxing. But, you know, generally there's some ill will towards your opponents and you don't really want to be friends with your opponents. Everyone that I've ever fought in jujitsu, I, I basically add on Facebook right after. And, and then, you know, you go, if you can keep it friendly with them and keep it open, hey, that was a great match or whatever. I'd love to come train with you sometimes. Um, you can really forge some awesome training partners and friendships just by doing that. And it's all just a part of networking as a whole. So definitely, uh, you know, learn and, and introduce yourself to the people that you fight because that's also a great resource. Yeah, one of the cool things about jiu-jitsu is that it is inherently a non-violent martial art whereas a, a lot of other martial arts are situations where you are trying to hurt people whereas in jiu-jitsu if you do it right, you're trying not not to hurt them. And I, I think that probably is what allows you to have, to build kind of relationships there. Like the, the thing about jiu-jitsu that I like is, you know, even when you're, fighting intensely it is ultimately a martial art that is about de-escalation right you're uh it, it's it is very much like chess in that sense where you know you're not trying to necessarily destroy someone you're trying to checkmate them um it's about defusing the situation and i think psychologically that makes it easier to forge relationships with the people that you're sparring with yeah definitely yeah i don't think you necessarily see that kind of stuff happen in like mma or in boxing but in jujitsu you know you're you're not punching guys in the face <laughs> i think that really does change the nature of the relationship you have with your opponent. So, Matt, a topic that you wanted to discuss is people who can promote you and manage your jiu-jitsu journey. Now, if you are attending someone else's gym, this often is not a concern. Most of the time, the person you, your instructor is going to be the person who manages your promotions. But in a lot of cases, if you are off on your own, going, you're going on your own way, you're starting a new gym, maybe one that's unaffiliated, uh, or if you move, you might not be in a situation where you actually have an instructor who can readily promote you and manage you. And, uh, you know, if you're a brown belt, that's a problem because you want to get that black belt sooner rather than later if you're running a gym. But even at black belt, you know, if you're going to be doing this for years and years and years, you don't want to be like a, you know, you do still want to eventually get promoted at black belt. So it's something you do need to think about. Uh, you said you had some ideas on this. So let's talk about that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people that are training out there right now and depending on whatever rank they may be, they might not have an instructor, right? Maybe they were at a gym and they left for whatever reason or, or uh, you know, God forbid, maybe they self-promoted themselves. But um, yeah, you know, like you said, if you're going to have a gym and uh, you're not a black belt, that's going to... I don't want to say it's going to hurt your marketing, but it's definitely not going to help your marketing. You know, you, the layman who's looking up jujitsu and, and researching instructors is probably going to go with the black belt just by default. So um, it's really important to, you know, to, to, to try and find someone that you respect enough that's critical of your game who can promote you. And I think a great place to do this is... Uh, an environment like a tournament because you'll learn uh, you'll, you'll you'll meet a lot of people from a lot of different schools and you'll sort of see who they're under 
And, uh, you know, the more people you know, the better. The last thing you want is to have an instructor that you don't really believe in their teaching or or they're trying to promote you really quickly. Um, and that's that can be hard to see sometimes. I've, <laughs> I've seen instructors that try and promote people too quickly. And uh, it, it's a real thing. One of the reasons I'm under Rob is because he's so critical of me and because he his standards of me are incredibly high and and you know he's i don't want to say that he puts me down but at times it can be uh it, it can almost deflate you a little bit but it's because he's got your best interest in mind he has such a high standard so that's the reason why i i went under a guy like that now um you know trying to trying to create those relationships with those people who are who are in such a, a position where they can promote you can be difficult at times. So, you know, you could, you could go the route where you're trying to franchise your business and trying to be like a GB or something, you know, uh, not to shit on them, but they, they will take your money <laughs> or like a Ribeiro, they will take your money or you could try and actually seek someone out. And my recommendation would be, you know, look at the top schools in the area try and see who they're under and try and create a relationship with that person that can lead to something down the road. Not just, not just, Hey, I want to get my black belt from you, but like, I'm, I want to train with you. I'm going to visit you multiple times and and I want to have a friendship with you. Yeah. This is really all about networking. The, and this is a general principle when it comes to networking. Um, the, the time where you don't want to be doing your networking is when you want something. Like this is the mistake a lot of people make is they don't do any networking and then one day they want something and so then they shoot out a bunch of emails and they're surprised when no one responds to them. Networking is something you should always be doing. You should always be building and investing in those relationships so that one day if you do want to start working or training or with someone or training under someone, there's already that relationship there and they would be interested in it, right? Uh, what you don't want is a situation where you're basically cold calling all of these instructors because you're in a situation now where you don't have an instructor and you need to find one. Um, this is similar to, you know, if you're looking, if you're in the workforce, you don't want to, you know, you, you need these relationships because it gives you more options if the job that you're, you currently have isn't working out or you want to switch. Um, you know, the last time, the worst time to app to start networking is when you need something from someone. You don't want to be that guy who sends out that email and says like, hey, how are you doing? I know we haven't talked in five years, but uh, are you hiring? Like those, those kinds of emails never go over well. And it's much better to get your networking done well in advance and have that be an ongoing process rather than waiting until you need something because that's so transparent and everybody sees right through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, something we, we haven't really discussed too much on, but I'll just make a little side note that if you are an athlete and, uh, you're serious about jujitsu and having a career in jujitsu, whether it be, uh, being a competitor or, or being a gym owner, um, and if, if you know that your skill set is at a level that stands out, uh, thinking about a sponsorship is actually a good idea. Um, you know, this maybe doesn't pertain as much to a, a gym owner situation, but definitely being a sponsored athlete who uh, who opens a gym, it could be beneficial to say, hey, I represent this brand or whatever. Like, I represent a few different brands, uh, BC Kimonos, uh, Jiu Jitsu Boutique, and uh, uh, Simply Wellness Dental makes some really great mouth guards. Um, 
uh, S&C supplements, which gives me like, you know, protein powder and creatines and things like this. If you have sponsors that are helping you, this is almost like a skill trading situation where you represent them and they in return will give you things that are going to cost you a lot of money, like equipment and travel fees and supplements and, and mouth guards and all these things. So um, just as a side note, if you are an athlete and you're serious about jujitsu, if you uh, can consistently get on podiums, um, you're probably going to be the natural progression is going to be for you to get sponsored hopefully and uh, the way that I got sponsored after a few years of competition I think I was purple belt when I f- first got sponsored by BC Kimonos and, and BJJ Depot was I just I basically just reached out to them and said hey you know um, I'd love to represent you I know you have a great product um, I, I love wearing it and uh, it, I don't know if you're interested but I'd love to represent you at tournaments and the, the feedback was was shockingly positive right so uh, just a side note for people people that are competing. Um, Don't be afraid to ask for sponsorships because uh, a lot of the time they're not going to come to you, right? So if you ask them and you get denied, at least you'll even be on their radar, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing I will say is, uh, um, you know, teams that want to sponsor you, they might not just be, or sorry, companies that want to sponsor you are looking for things also other than constantly winning tournaments. They want to know that you're a good person, you're easy to work with, you know, you're fun to be around. You're active on social. You're active on, definitely got to represent them on social, you know, learning, we we talked in the last episode about learning how to post and how to make your posts a little bit more effective and things like that. And of course, are you respectful at tournaments or do you have a reputation of being a jerk, right? So these are all things that can add up. But, um, you know, I think that an athlete who is serious that puts their heart and their life into jujitsu is probably destined to be sponsored. So, you know, something to think about. Yeah. An important thing to understand is that a lot of companies that do jujitsu related business, these are not big, gigantic fortune 500 companies where you're never going to be able to get a hold of someone, right? Like a lot of these are like one or two person businesses and they're probably more than happy to talk to you. And the cost for a lot of these people to sponsor you is usually not huge either because they're probably going to sponsor you by providing product that they've already made a ton of. So it's something where it's likely easier than you think it is, especially in this industry. Something related to that, and this is a topic I want to discuss in depth, is social media conduct. Now, it is so important in this day and age to really understand the impact of what you say and do on social media. But if you are running a business and if you're running a jujitsu gym, that is definitely a business. You've got to understand that there are do's and don'ts when it comes to how you curate your profile online. Um, my, my general advice to most people on social media is just shut the hell up. <laughs> you know, most, I wish someone told me that years ago. Yeah. Like <laughs> if, if it even crosses your mind, Hey, is this a good thing to post on social media? Don't post it. (laughs) That's kind of the first rule. The other rule, of course, is don't say anything on social media that you wouldn't say in real life. Um, But another thing to bear in mind about social media is that things on social media are really not private and they're not, and they're permanent, right? This isn't like saying something stupid in a bar. You post something on social media. Um, and even if it's not something that's absolutely terrible, it could be taken out of context. It, um, you know, times could change and maybe something that wasn't a huge problem once now suddenly is, um, you gotta be really careful about what you put on social media. Uh, generally speaking, uh, complaining in pretty much any way, shape or form, 
bad idea on social media. Uh, political kind of, views. Yeah, political views. Unless that is like somehow directly tied to the nature of your business, really not advisable to get into like political or, or religious views on social media. I mean, hey, I, I know that these are important to you and maybe there are other avenues where sharing that is a good idea, but it's often good to kind of separate your business from your personal views. That's going to turn off a lot of people that you could otherwise help and it's going to make them kind of wonder, you know, what kind of business is this really? Because no one wants to join a jiu-jitsu gym that's going to be really preachy one way or the other about politics. Or So it's something that you, you all, it, it also dilutes or dilutes and convolutes your message if you're posting about that kind of stuff on a jiu-jitsu page. Um, also, you know, try to avoid stuff that is like really kind of like um, kind of like, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but stuff where you're, you're like putting yourself down or you're kind of complete, you know, you're having like your internal monologue up there and you're complaining about, you know, what's going on in your life today. Like mm. that kind of stuff. It's bad enough when people do that on their own personal social, social media page, but it's a really bad idea to put something like that on, you know, your gym page where you talk about how oh, today was a rough day. This didn't work. That didn't work. Um, generally speaking on social media, you know, you, you want to act on social media like you would in a job interview. You want to be, you know, positive. You want to be professional. Uh, and, but you also want to come across as someone who's really action oriented. You don't want to be seen as someone who's kind of complaining or whining. And you have to understand that once you put something on social media, you really cannot control how big that audience is going to get that sees your message. You might have meant to intend it to just three of your close buddies, but you can't really control that. And once something spreads, you really cannot delete it either. So social media is a lot more dangerous than most people think it is. And if you're running a business, it's especially important to be wary of what you post on social media. Yeah. All, all through high school and even years after high school, I am... Um... I didn't have any social media, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, nothing like that. Uh, I, I completely stayed off of it until I wanted to start marketing myself as an athlete, you know, and gain sponsorships and, you know, see how far I could go with the sport, even, you know, before I, I, I wanted to have a club. And, uh, you know, just like anything, you, you kind of learn and you mature over time. I've, I've made so many <laughs> fair share of mistakes posting things on social media that I regret. And for those of you who are listening and know, I'm sure you know. And, and, um, nowadays, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's not about my business and it's not about, uh, you know, jujitsu or competition or it's not about, uh, my family, like a cute picture of my daughter, I just don't post it. I, I'm truly at a point now where I, it's less is more. My posts are way shorter. You know, I used to, I used to do, uh, a tournament and then I'd make a huge post and whatever. Now I don't even care about that. It's, it's purely for my business and for my family now. And, and that's it. I, I've realized that, um, you know, your own, no one cares about your own personal views. And if someone does care about your personal views, you really don't want them to see your post. So, uh, unfortunately, social media, you know, it's, it's actually a wonderful tool where you can share all this information. But unfor uh, unfortunately, people, uh, you know, they, they're getting used to a world where they can say things and, and, uh, not have to feel consequences. So, what happens is you get these people or that, feel unexpected consequences if they say the wrong thing in the wrong place, right? And they're at the wrong time. It's a, it, it can go either way. Yeah. Well, well, I, th I think that people are basically they'll say stuff online that they won't say to your face. Yeah. Exactly. There's no consequence to say someone will say something to you online where uh, the proper response in, in in real life might be. Well, I'm not going to condone violence, but you know what I mean. Anyways, people will say something that they won't necessarily say to your face, and as a result, you know, you could post uh, your opinion 
opinion about something and then before you know it you got all these people that are that are uh, you know smearing your name and and shaming you and and public shame mob shaming is a real thing and uh you know it's it, it happens all over social media every day um you know and, and and it's better off to just avoid it especially when you've got stakes in the game and and you have a business so nowadays i'm a ver- i'm very much a minimalist on social media and you know it's if it's a picture with me training with with you know having great training that's good if it's if it's a a post about a tournament or my business or my child that's good other than that i just stay clear of it i don't even i don't even say anything anymore yeah i don't know if this is a the right podcast to talk about this but it's fascinating that our children are going to come up in a generation where they've never known a time without this stuff you know know. human beings lived for all this time with face-to-face uh or or at least audio being our primary method of communicating with each other you know you we're built as as a tribe such that you know if we want to talk to someone we do it one-on-one or we do it in a group we're not really equipped to deal with I, hey, I post a message and like literally the whole world can see it. Our brains don't really work that way. And I, I think that part of the reason people get into such trouble with social media is because in a lot of ways, it kind of runs contrary to the way that human psychology works. And so if you're going to really engage on social media, you've got to train your brain to understand where the risks are. And hopefully this conversation was helpful for you. Generally speaking, though, like I said, you know, if you wouldn't say it to someone on person, don't say it on the internet. Um, if so, you know, a lot of the time on the internet, um, just not responding is better than getting pulled into an argument. That's another really important thing that people need to understand. And also certain types of messages like, you know, complaining or whininess or negativity, they never go over well when you post them on social media. Understand that what you're putting on social media, if you're running a business, it that's basically part of your sales pitch. It's part of your sales yeah. material, right? It would be like if, you know, someone if you were interviewing someone for a job and they just whined and complained the whole time about how bad their prior job is like you're not going to hire that person when you post something negative like that on social media that's going to be how this gets perceived if you have you know if you have real issues and there are negative things going on in your life and you need to complain or vent the place to do that is directly with the people that you care about and that you love and you want to do that in a private setting you don't want to post that out publicly um, that's just, especially if you're running a business, that that's your business should really be a place that is more about the business itself than about your personal issues, which should be kept private. Yeah. If it wasn't for my business, I would not be on social media anymore. That's a hundred percent true. <laughs> so wrapping up the topics today, we talked about skill trading. We talked about the logistics of your building, such as the relationship with your landlord, neighboring businesses, possible issues like noise disturbances and, and parking limitations, as well as the importance of location. We talked about dealing with the competitive landscape. So the gyms around you, the other jujitsu uh, schools in the area. We talked about the processes for, you know, acquiring privates. We talked about strategies for setting up seminars and workshops. We talked about attending and hosting open mats. We talked about how to how to engage tournaments, both as a, you know, as a competitor, as a coach and in the role of a volunteer. We talked about finding someone who can promote you and manage your jujitsu journey. We talked about sponsorships and we talked about social media conduct in terms of the mental models that we discussed. 
discussed. We talked about having an abundance mindset, meaning seeing the world as a a win-win opportunity and not being so ferociously engaged with your competitors that you see every one of their wins as one of your losses. Really, your focus should be on growing jujitsu as a whole, not just on taking away from other people in the community. We talked about um, idea communism or like an information commons where uh, knowledge, everyone succeeds if knowledge is freely shared. It allows all of us to grow and there is no cost to sharing knowledge. So it's in everyone's best interests to do that. And we talked about investing in loss, meaning that especially in the case of building your reputation, you may have to give some, some value to people and deliver some value before you can reasonably expect them to be willing to pay for your services. That's part of building and managing your reputation. Matt, I think that was a good chat. Uh, we have a question, not related to the topic, but I thought it would be an interesting one. Cool. Cool. So the question was regarding wrestling for jiu-jitsu. Uh, the question is, John Danaher mentions jiu-jitsu is a battle of the lower body, the legs, wrestling, the upper body of the opponent. If this is the case, what are some concepts on achieving a successful takedown on a jiu-jitsu player without getting caught in a submission or losing position on the finish? I can share some thoughts on the, on this first and foremost. Um, I don't recall that Danaher quote anywhere. Um, I'm not even sure if I agree with it. I don't think jujitsu is necessarily just about the legs. I see where you could bring that approach in. I see why you might think that, but I, I certainly have never thought that way. I mean, from from my perspective, the way that I've always thought of the differences between these is wrestling is more about wrestling, for lack of a better term. Your, your job in wrestling is to wrestle your opponent to the ground. Uh, you basically want to get them onto the floor with yourself in a dominant position. Jiu-Jitsu acknowledges the reality that you can't always do this. And a lot of the time, you're going to be the one who winds up on the ground. And that mm-hmm. is especially more likely if you are at an athletic disadvantage or if you're caught off guard. So Jiu-Jitsu really acknowledges the reality of dealing with a stronger opponent and how to then invert the position and wind up on top. Um, I've never thought of jujitsu as like a legs, a, a legs focused martial art. In fact, when I, you know, for the longest time when I trained, I, I thought it was more about the upper body than anything else because leg locks were still so kind of rare and uncommon then. I see where that thought process can come from, but that's not how I think of it personally. I, I don't think that's what he means. Um, and I don't know if that's the actual Danaher quote. What I believe Danaher was saying is, should I use the Danaher voice? Can you do it, Anna, her voice? Do it. Now, let's understand something. <laughs> the, best, the best grapplers that I've ever seen have used the legs to control strangles on the upper body of the opponent. I hope that wasn't so cringeworthy that you guys will stop listening. <laughs> Sorry, you okay. broke me here. Okay, okay. keep talking. Okay, so, so basically what John Anna is saying is... Um, he's seen his students excel most when they use their legs to wrestle their upper the their opponent's upper body meaning to uh and when i say wrestle i literally just mean grapple i don't mean like uh wrestling like takedowns Uh, some people use the term wrestling to just describe jujitsu um i I think what what danaher means in this is is people that get proficient in using their legs to apply triangles and arm bars and and things like that uh, get better at jujitsu much faster than people that try and use their arms to grapple people. And that makes total sense because it means that your guard is, is a lot more, it's going to become a lot more effective. Your hip movement's going to be a lot more better. 
you're going to be able to isolate your opponent's arms easier because your legs are very strong. Uh, so, so I think that's what he means by that. So I think that the question possibly could be taken slightly out of context. Um, so the, the real question is, uh, what are some concepts on achieving a successful takedown on a jiu-jitsu player without getting caught in a submission? That is such a vague question because styles really do make fights. You know, like uh, it depends. What's your what's what type of takedowns are you trying to get? Are you trying to t- do a, a low takedown like an ankle pick or a low single, or are you trying to go for throws? Right, like a Sayanagi or or a, you know Harayo Goshi or whatever. It it varies a lot. Um, I would say that the more that you commit to a takedown, um, the more risk is going to be involved. And also the more chance that you can actually successfully land the takedown. So, you know, every time that I, if I'm standing with you, Steve, and I try and grab your head, you know, I, I kind of have to reach out to grab you. But every time I do that, I expose my own arm as a lever. So, um, generally speaking the type of wrestling that i like to do especially nowadays is i stop shooting (laughs) because my knees are not in a position where i want to shoot on someone uh very rarely do i shoot and only do i shoot on people that are basically my size i i think that uh if your opponent's much bigger than you and you try and shoot on them you know unless you're extremely explosive and confident a good chance you're going to get sprawled on right so um I like, I like takedowns that are less committing and don't involve a lot of risk. So things, standing takedowns, I like things like arm drags, you know, u- utilizing a lever from standing to gain a dominant angle, something like that, or, or playing more of an anti-wrestling game where you kind of cook them on the feet. Maybe they'll get, uh, undisciplined and you can kind of, you know, work the clinch and snap them down because really what takedowns are you going to get caught in? You might get caught in like a standing guillotine if your posture is horrible. You might get caught in a flying arm bar if you overuse your your collar tire or whatever. So, you know, the same rules apply as when we speak about alignment. Keep your arms close to your body. Keep your posture good. Keep your feet moving. You know, stay in base. Don't, don't do anything that's going to be overcommitting and reckless, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, because a lot of the time, the jiu-jitsu opponent's doing the same thing. He might not be a wrestler, but he's waiting for you to shoot on him so he can apply a submission, right? So, um, I don't know. That's sort of my takeaway on that. I, I think the, the, the safer you can be and looking for things like arm drags and, and, uh, you know, things like that are going to be a lot safer than shooting in for that double. Cause then there's a good chance you're either a going to get choked out or B end up in the close guard. Uh, okay. I'm back. You totally killed me with that Danaher. Impression. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So if, yeah, if you're, if your understanding is correct, where he's talking about basically engaging all of your body and not just your arms, then I, I 100% agree with that. You know, we've talked about that in the past. One of the mental models we previously discussed was using overwhelming force. So, understanding that your arms are really, you know, they're not nearly as strong as your legs or your core. And the more of your weapons that you can engage, the more likely you're going to be able to successfully off balance your opponent. Uh, If that's what he's saying, then yes, I I definitely agree with that. In terms of how to keep yourself safe, things we previously talked about were um, number one, you know, basically just being, you know, staying coiled and not exposing a limb or your neck unless you have a very good reason of doing so. And you know that you can't reversed the problem that a lot of people make or when they when they go for takedowns is they get overly enthusiastic and they kind of more rely more on athleticism than on timing and they kind of throw themselves into it 
And usually that means that like if they're going for like a double or a single, usually that means they're stretching their arms out in front of them because they're so eager to get that takedown or they leave their neck dangling. And that's the kind of thing where there's a possibility that you could get submitted. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not always the highest, but it does happen. Um, another, so to your point, Matt, one of the things that I prefer in jujitsu, and again, this is another mental model we discussed earlier, is the concept of committed techniques. Whenever you're looking at a, at a technique, especially for takedowns, understand what the best and the worst case scenarios are for that takedown, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes the worst case scenario is really bad. Like, you know, I remember Get one, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember one, or it could be worse, right? I remember one time I shot a double on a guy who was like 50 or 60 pounds heavier than me and he sprawled on me and just like popped every vertebrae in my neck. And after that, I was like, no more of these doubles uh, because it's just, that's one of the things that can happen, especially in jujitsu where it's hard to get a clean double on someone, right? Especially in the gi. So I like to think about every single move I'm doing and understanding, you know, what what is the worst case scenario that could happen here? And to your point about like arm drags, things like arm drags and collar drags, um, these tend to be very, very low risk in the grand scheme of things because if like if you try to collar drag someone or arm drag someone and it doesn't go well, there's a lot of fallbacks that you have. Uh, similarly, if you go for like a single leg, it's a lot easier to recover from a bad single than it is to recover from a bad double. Um, for me personally, usually because I'm giving up a lot of size, I prefer to try to get into like instep guard or something like that as soon as possible. Because just I find from there, and this is just me personally, you're still in like a good technical base and you can always just get back up if it's not working, right? Uh, where you haven't committed yourself so badly that now you're like, you're, the guy's sprawled on top of you. That's really the the main situation I want to try to avoid. So... Yeah, this is really similar to, I think, what you said, but, you know, you want to make sure you're not leaving anything dangling out there and you want to really evaluate the pros and cons of every different takedown that you know and, and understand that some of them probably have higher upside and lower down and less downside than the other ones. Yeah, and also if, if you are going for takedowns um, and you're not a guard puller, j- just know that, um, you know, it, the, a successful takedown you need to have good setups, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can you can have like a really good shot, but it's your setup really that that kind of dictates whether or not it's going to be successful. You know, how you either snap your opponent down or if you're doing an arm drag or if you can somehow generate a little bit of Kazushi before you do your takedown, mm-hmm. that makes all the difference in the world in terms of, you know, making it successful. So try and play your angles, try and get Kazushi and work on your setups. If you, you know, if you want to get, you don't need to know all the takedowns, but if you want to get like a, you know, a, a good, a good shot, you know, practice some wrestling, do your, know, know the basic shots, you know, single, high crotch, double, learn how to do an ankle pick, right? And then, and then have at least like one throw, like, you know, a Sayanagi or, or a, an a Ogoshi or something like that. So you don't have to know all the, all the throws, but you do need to understand, like you said, your opponent's predictable reactions, right? And you need to know how to, uh, you need to know how to break their balance before you're going for these takedowns. Takedowns aren't really a, a big part of my game anymore. And when I do wrestle, I kind of play the anti-wrestling game because, um, yeah, I, I just find it safer for me. And and I'm not really a wrestler by trade, but... Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for the question. And as always, if anyone has any other questions they want us to answer or any topics they'd like us to discuss, please do share. This show is best when it's a two-way conversation, so any feedback is appreciated. Understand something. Oh, God. <laughs>
<laughs> we, I've, I've greatly enjoyed this chat tonight. <laughs> Are we going to cut that up? Uh, no, we're not going to okay. cut that out. We're going to leave that. Take care, everybody. All right. Have a good night, guys. Thank you.